This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. On this episode of the Commonweal Podcast, Catholic journalist and papal biographer Austin Ivory talks with senior editor Matthew Boudway about the Vatican's February summit on clerical sex abuse. Eula Biss, author of On Immunity and Inoculation and No Man's Land American Essays, speaks with assistant editor Griffin Olenek about the spiritual challenges of racism, the meaning of whiteness, and the craft of nonfiction writing. Boston College professor Hosman Espino explains how new generations of Latino Americans are reshaping notions about cultural Catholicism in the U.S. And Catherine Davis talks with literary editor Anthony Domestico about metaphor, mystery, and pilgrimage in her novel, The Silk Road. This is the Commonweal Podcast. In February of this year, bishops from around the world were summoned to the Vatican for a summit on the global sexual abuse crisis. Austin Ivory, a Catholic journalist who has authored a biography of Pope Francis, spoke with our senior editor, Matthew Boudway, before the summit and then again afterward. Their two-part conversation on what the summit hoped to achieve and what it did or did not follows. I thought we'd start, Austin, by talking about the Pope's own remarks about what we should and should not expect from the summit. On a flight from Panama on January 27th, he told reporters that they, we have to deflate expectations. Uh, and then he described the summit as being essentially about catechesis. What did he mean by that? I, I think he meant catechesis in the sense that it's education and awareness. And, but that doesn't mean it isn't also hard-hitting because what he wants the bishops of the world to be aware of, and this is, let's remember, the first ever global summit of presidents and bishops' conferences, he wants them all to go home knowing exactly how they need to respond to any case, any allegation of abuse that comes their way, uh, how, to, how to act on behalf of victims, but also to make sure that they listen to victims. Uh, so I think there'll be a strong element, really, of making the church, particularly in Asia and Africa, aware of the kind of protocols, guidelines and canon law that exists at the moment and that is used and has been used for at least 15 years in, in the northern world. So I think partly that's the purpose is awareness. But really, I think there's a deeper purpose, which is what I tried to bring out in the article, which is that he's aiming, I think, at a change of culture. And that, I think, is, is the bigger picture. Near the beginning of your article, you write that this isn't just about the United States. And, of course, we're speaking in the United States, and most of our listeners are in the United States or in the English-speaking world. But you point out that this, this summit isn't just about the crisis. It's been in the headlines here, but the problem throughout the world, in Africa and Asia and Latin America, and you write that in those places, they don't think they have an abuse crisis, but they do. And, and actually, that's really well known. I mean, I know African cardinals who will just say to you, you know, this is, this is not our problem. You know, if we have a, any of these cases in Africa, it's because it's a foreign missionary. But actually, it's just not true. I mean, we know from stories that have come to light even many years ago of nuns with, with AIDS who uh, have been abused by priests. And actually, anybody who knows the African scene particularly knows that, for example, you get an African priest who is in receipt of large sums of foreign 
aid money to help with development, say, coming from Germany or America. That priest very quickly becomes a very powerful figure locally. He becomes a kind of a sugar daddy, and many people come to depend on him and look up to him. Now, it's very easy in those circumstances for that person to be corrupted by that power and to start to demand things. So instead of serving people, he makes use of them, he exploits them. And then it's not just the act of abuse, it's also the fact that then nobody wants to talk about it because, of course, if you question or challenge him, then, you know, everything unravels and your source of of welfare uh, disappears. That's the kind of corruption that the Pope really wants to address. In other words, he wants the church everywhere to see that these this culture of corruption, which really we can summarize in the word clericalism because it's a whole mentality, is prevalent everywhere and that's what needs to be dealt with above all. Now, the argument you make in the article you wrote for us, well, you make, you make a couple arguments, but I'd say that the main one is that all we need reform, we need institutional reform, new norms, new guidelines, but all of the institutional reform, all the juridical reform in the world will be unavailing unless there's a a metanoia, you say, a conversion. Uh, The Holy Spirit is calling the church to recenter itself, to to change its focus, in fact. And you think this is um, in keeping with the Pope's larger vision of the church's future. And I say this simply because I spent a lot of last year following very carefully, particularly the crisis in Chile, which I was very, very aware of. I was out there with him and so on. Uh, And then obviously... During the year, you had Chile crisis, you had, you had McCarrick, you had the Grand Jury report, you had the Australian and German reports. And the Pope then responding, of course, with the, with the People of God letter on August the 20th. You then had, at the end of the year, his address to the Curia, and you had his letter to the U.S. bishops as they went on retreat in January. So you actually have seen a kind of uh, rich encyclical, almost, of his, own, and you, of his own teaching on this, his own discernment, which you can see is growing and changing. So I'm going to just try and sum it up in a way, probably way too crudely, but I think it's quite important in a way to nail it. At the heart of this, he's come to see is a kind of corruption which is a, a loss of ecclesial centre. So Christ has been forgotten, and the church has become the centre of attention, both its bella figura, the maintenance of it, and then, of course, when that fails, then it's the the sin and the scandal of the church then becomes the centre of attention. And at the root of that is a forgetting or a turning away from the vision of the church at the Second Vatican Council in Lumen Gentium of the Church as people of God. So what is what has happened is that the institution has withdrawn from the people of God. God hasn't withdrawn from the people of God. God is still present in the people of God. But because the institution has withdrawn from the people of God and God has turned its back on, on, on Christ, then... It is in a situation of corruption. The revelations, the crises, the scandals are the prophet Nathan, you know, recalling David to what he's done. And that in this crisis, in this scandal, in this revelation of corruption, there is a grace of conversion which is being offered to the church, just as it's offered to every one of us who has to go into the situation. And the grace is what? The grace is to convert to being who we really are and who we are really called to be, which is to put Christ then back at the centre. So, so I see his role as a bit like a spiritual director leading a group on a retreat through a process of conversion getting them to face what's happened, why it's happened, to face their sin, and then to accept the grace of of conversion and not be distracted by the various temptations along the way which prevent us 
accepting that grace. And what are some of those temptations? Well, it's interesting because if you look at his letters to Chile, uh, the Chilean bishop, he's constantly warning them against what we might call the great Latin American vice, which is of talking, talking, talking. And, you know, I know the Chilean hierarchy. You know, they're a very educated, you know, slightly kind of hieratic lot. And... You know, faced with some of this stuff, they've taken refuge in what I might call endless reasons and arguments. Oh, but we've done this and pray. With the U.S. bishops, very interesting. He said, "Don't try and take refuge in you know what the American vice is, which is programs and juridical mechanisms, because what happens is in the first case you've got really a kind of denial." And in the second case, in the American case, what's the problem? You're putting the institution always at the centre. Actually, we don't exist for the institution. The institution exists. For God, for Christ, for the purpose of evangelization. So I think it, it, the evasion mechanisms are different in each case. Uh, for somebody who studied this Pope's thinking and writing over many years, I know his writings as a Jesuit, and what's been fascinating in 2018 is to see how he's drawing on his own very deep, fascinating writings on institutional desolation in the 1990s, and he's been, which are, which are fascinating, and he's been using the lessons from that now, this year, in, the, in 2018, 2019, in guiding the church now through its uh, institutional desolation. You've mentioned the, the crisis in Chile. Maybe you could say a little bit about how you think that crisis changed Pope Francis's own thinking about this problem. I, I'm convinced, and I'm not the only one who's convinced, that um, quite a lot changed in January of 2018 in Francis's own mind. Now, trying to... because. A quick recap. I mean, Francis had spent three years defending the appointment of a bishop that he had made, a bishop who had pleaded his in innocence but who was accused of involvement with and cover-up for the notorious priest Father Fernando Caradima. Now, I think Francis was applying, before January 2018, he was applying his principles. And one of those principles is you defend the innocent because actually priests and bishops are subject to false accusations. Most accusations are true, but some are false. We know that. Uh, and the innocent are innocent until they're proved guilty. And so he stuck to that principle, and he balanced that with other principles, like listening to victims, like safeguarding. So he had his, I think it was five principles I've worked out that he was operating under. But what he realised in Chile was that that wasn't enough, because, in fact, the picture that he had of the situation in Chile was a distorted one, because he was being told what the truth was, by people who were actually part of the institutional desolation or corruption. And that's where I think he, he moved from seeing this as a case of you know, sin and failure and so on to actually seeing this as a matter of corruption. Now, this is a pope who's spent a lot of time thinking about corruption. He's from a country in which corruption exists in the church and in the state at, at, at a very high level. And he has a wonderful essay from 1991 called Sin and Corruption, in which he distinguishes between the two. And the difference is this. As somebody who is sinning, at some level knows they're doing wrong and they're looking for a way out. So if you offer that person mercy, you know, if they're repentant, then you learn that you know, God's forgiveness is waiting for you. Then, you, if you like, mercy creates the space for you to change. The corrupt person, however, is no use offering mercy because they don't think that they're doing anything wrong. They're in denial. They've created a complete false, if you like, double life. And they, they, they have started to believe even themselves that they haven't done anything wrong. And with people who are corrupt, you have to confront them. And it's usually, in, in an individual's case, it's only when you know, their wife leaves them, their business collapses, they get terminal cancer or something, or the police knock at the door, like in all the police films. Yeah, that's when corruption... Is a, so he started to see this issue, and I think this is really significant, he started to see this as a matter of corruption. In other words, a bit like 
he, he needed an approach like the one he's taking with Vatican finances. In other words, you know, you need a, a massive uh, shake-up uh, in order to tra- change the culture, and therefore uh, only that kind of a radical... But now, in a way, he, he didn't have to bring in the police because the journalists have done it for him. He, and he said in his speech to the Curia at Christmas, he likened the role of the media in this to that of the prophet Nathan confronting David with his own uh, corruption. But what you asked me about how he, how he came to see it, I think he came to see it as a matter of corruption and that it wasn't essentially about sex, it's essentially about power. And that there is three abuses involved. There's abuse of power, abuse of conscience, and sexual abuse is part of it. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a you know, when Shikluna comes back with his report, the Pope says, wow, I've got this spectacularly wrong. And he has the extraordinary humility to say, you know, publicly, I, I messed up here. You know, wow, I've got this wrong. And then to say to the Chilean bishops, right, I want you all to come here. We're going to face this together. And then, you know, they offer their resignation and everything that's followed from that. So he's a man, I think, who, who starts to see it as a matter of corruption and realises that something much more radical than the mere tinkering of protocols will, will take. So... We talked about what the Pope thinks or has said we should expect from the Bishop's Sex Abuse Summit in February. Maybe you could tell us what you expect to see. What are realistic expectations uh, and what do you hope for? What's the best case scenario? <laughs> this is very mean because this podcast is going out after the... <laughs> it's after it's the true and we can update it later. But <laughs> and, uh, and you're asking me to make a prediction. That's right. But here's my prediction um, and I'm fairly sure that this is true. I think the abuse uh, victims, the survivors, groups who are, will be standing outside the Synod Hall with their placards will be interviewed every day by the press and they will say nothing concrete, everybody's just talking, 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 you know, we want to see bishops' heads roll, we want to see blah, blah, blah. And I think the right wing in America, which has curiously come to, in many ways, share the view of, of you know, SNAP and so on, many of the survivors' groups, which is, you know, they want their pound of flesh, they want to, they want to see a purge. I mean, in the case of the right wing, of course, they want to see a purge of gay people, they want to, the liberals, all the people that they see have compromised the modernity of the church. So various groups are going to express deep levels of disappointment. But I think what you're going to get is hopefully what happened in the Gregorian, Great Gregorian University Conference in 2012, you're going to get bishops coming out going, wow, you know, wow. And, yeah, that hopefully is going to come across. You know, we're going to get bishops who are interviewed, who are from Asia or Africa, who can say, look, I, I, you know, I really have been changed by this. And my, here's my other prediction. The Pope at the end of it is going to give one of his most important speeches, which is going to be like a summary of this encyclical, as I call it, you know, of 2018, which I, I did call the Chilean encyclical, but which now has to include the United States. Right. So I think one of the most, his most important speeches in which I think he will leave nobody in any doubt about where he stands and how he sees the opportunity of conversion being offered in this tribulation. I'm speaking again today with Austin Ivory about the Vatican Summit on Sex Abuse. Uh, Austin, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Matt. When we last spoke, which was... A couple of weeks uh, before the summit, I offered uh, you the chance to make a prediction about the summit, what would come of it, what the headlines might be. And one of your predictions was about uh, the Pope's final statement or or speech. You said that we should uh, listen carefully to that. You thought it would be memorable and important. And I think it's fair to say that your prediction was confirmed by the headlines, at least. The Pope's speech did receive a lot of attention. 
in the press, although much of it was negative. And so you've written for us again after the summit about why so many people were dissatisfied with the Pope's remarks at the end of the summit. First of all, were you surprised by what he said or didn't say at the end? Yes. What I wasn't prepared for was that he would do a speech, the first third of which was essentially locating the clerical sex abuse crisis within the much larger context of exploitation against children in all kinds of spheres, but particularly in developing countries. That actually turned out to be the most controversial part of the speech because the reaction of many of the the victims' groups outside was, oh, he's trying to minimise, he's trying to relativise the church's abuse. Now, he wasn't trying to do that, and I'll I'll come back to explain why he wasn't. And And it wasn't very him, you know, so clearly that had been farmed out to somebody It was full of statistics, and it didn't sound very much like him. Then he got going, and then I thought it was actually vintage him because it was all about the conversion that needs to take place. Now, the problem, you know, what when we discussed this last time, Matt, was that, you know, one of the predictions I made was that this is actually about conversion. It's about conversion of hearts and minds. That's what they're aiming for, because without that conversion, you know, you, you can have as many rules and norms and regulations as you like, but you, it's the conversion that's needed. However, I added, I think I said this anyway, but of course, everybody will say, well, it's too vague. You know, well, that is exactly what's happened. So what happened in the summit was really quite remarkable. It's what I wrote about in the recent piece. And, you know, I was close to it and listening to people and, and hearing their testimonies. And there definitely some real shifts took place in that summit. And the Pope at the beginning of it said, we want concrete measures to come out of this. And of course, what happened at the end was that there were various announcements about various changes. But If you believe that this is a a crisis or a situation that can only be solved through massive new stringent regulation, then of course you're going to be disappointed. So sure enough, you know, I was just reading the Washington Post piece, you know, it all sounded very vague. You know, the Pope didn't deliver on these concrete measures that he promised and the victims groups outside, of course, uh, saying very much the same thing. But I think what was going on there was that what you needed to understand was what this meeting was really about and what it was for. And its achievement actually, to me, is very, very significant because not not only did the bishops of the world, particularly in Asia and Africa, where they don't think they've got a problem, but they do, not only were they converted to the cause, but more importantly, what went on inside the Synod Hall, which we journalists weren't party to, were lots of discussions about changes that need to take place in Rome and in the way these things are handled. Now, just today, and I'm speaking to you just a couple of days after the summit ends, two of the big players in the, two of the organisers of the summit, Cardinal Blaise Subic of Chicago and Archbishop Charles Chacuna of Malta, who's the adjunct secretary of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and probably the leading canon lawyer on this, both said very, very strongly, we need to end this idea that we don't find out who, which bishops have been stood down. Right Now, this has been... For those, for those who know the issue, this has been actually a very big source of frustration for the reformers. They say, okay, we now know that bishops are stood down if they cover up, but we never find out why. The people of God are never told. We just know they resign. Now, they're now saying confidently this is going to change. And I know from having spoken to both of them, you know, how frustrated they've been in the past over this. So what's happened is that clearly in the, in the hall, there was a consensus about that. And the Pope now effectively has a mandate from the bishops to carry through these reforms. I've given you one example from one interview, but in fact, there have been other things that have been announced during the summit and since. In other words, the real changes, and they are concrete changes, are going to happen, but they're going to happen gradually, and they're going to be announced as they happen. But what's happened is that there's been a fundamental shift that has taken place in the institutional dynamics 
with which the church approaches abuse, which I think we will look back on this and say this was a, a signal moment. But of course, right now, a couple of days or even a week after the summit, you know, everybody's looking and saying, well, what did it achieve? And it's also true, is it not, that it's difficult to come up with one-size-fits-all procedural reforms that will be adequate throughout the world because the legal context and the law enforcement context is different in the United States and in much of the developed world than it is in, in other parts of the world. It may be that what works here won't work in exactly the same way that it works here somewhere else. So, for example, I know there's been the concern that if you promise to turn accused priests over to law enforcement in every country of the world, then you risk turning priests over to manifestly coercive uh, states that may punish any accused priests without due process or, or may punish priests too harshly for minor accusations. Exactly right. Or, or indeed, it could be then used against the church to deprive it of essential freedoms. But that said, and that's true, and that's why Rome has always been reluctant to say, you know, this thing called zero tolerance, you know, what does it actually mean in practice? How do you, how do you enforce it in lots of different cultural contexts? But what you can do as a church, and you have to do as a church, because we stand for something. And if we don't stand for yeah, the safeguarding of children, if we don't stand against the misuse of power for exploitation of the vulnerable, then who are we? You know, So clearly the church has to stand for uh, against abuse of, of all sorts. And that's why wherever you are, Africa, Asia, America, Europe, wherever you are, the Catholic church has to be seen and has to be known for that. But you're right on the particular procedural legal questions about, for example, involvement of civil authorities, that obviously is a very necessarily a local question. But what the church can say to every bishop in the world is, uh, if you hear about one of your priests abusing, you must investigate, you must suspend the priest immediately if it's a credible accusation, and you must inform Rome, you must inform the CDF, and a process will begin, which will lead to that to the removal of that priest from ministry because there is no room in the priesthood for anybody who abuses the young. The church can be absolutely clear about that. And in fact, the CDF are publishing what they call a vademecum, a handbook, which will make it absolutely clear to every bishop of the world exactly how they need to respond to this. And what about bishops who fail to follow that rule? A lot of people would say that the, the major problem now is that bishops themselves aren't accountable when they fail to report priests who are credibly accused of, of abuse, and that we need to go a higher level, that we've got workable protocols in place, for example, the Dallas Charter, for the priests themselves who are accused of misconduct. But the bishops who cover up for them are still not adequately accountable. That has been the big issue. That's been the big issue, really, of this pontificate, and that from the very beginning, uh, it was clear that this would be the next stage of the reform of this area. I don't agree, though, that bishops aren't now held accountable. We have actually very, even before the 2016 motu proprio that Francis brought in, actually quite a large number of bishops was, were stood down over this. But since the 2016 edict, it's very, very clear that any bishop anywhere in the world who fails to act properly to defend his flock and fails to take action against an abuser priest will be stood down. The motu proprio is called comiuna madre amorevole, like a loving mother, makes clear that this specifically relates to 
to sex abuse. And that there, there literally can be never any justification for failing to act. So I think actually the law is now very clear. I think what the concern, there are two concerns now over this. One is that we need to make sure every bishop understands what they have to do, hence the vademecum, hence, by the way, the summit, the whole point of bringing these bishops together was so that they're absolutely clear on this. And then secondly, we need greater transparency in keeping the people of God informed about what is happening. So this was something that came up a lot in, in the summit. Okay, we know Comeuna Madre Amorevole is working. We know a substantial number of bishops, I reckon it's something like 16, have been stood down in the last few years over that uh, legislation. But we never hear about it. The Vatican doesn't tell us. And that's why I say earlier that it was a very significant announcement from Archbishop Shikluna and Cardinal Subic to say, actually, there is no reason why Rome cannot tell us. It's ridiculous to take this confidentiality uh, stuff and apply it. You know, if a bishop has done wrong and he's asked to stand down before the age of 75 because of that, well, we need to be told, and I think, and I think there's a, there's an accountability and a transparency issue there. But I don't think there's any ambiguity now over what will happen to bishops if they cover up. Austin Ivory, thank you again for joining us and updating us on this important story. Been good to be with you, Matt. Thank you. You can read Austin's piece on the summit. Have the bishops learned anything? In our March twenty second issue, and on our website. Thank you for listening to the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, please spread the word and subscribe, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you stream podcasts. Thanks in advance for your support. Eula Biss is artist-in-residence in the English department at Northwestern University, where she also teaches creative writing. She's the author of On Immunity and Inoculation, which was named one of the 10 best books of 2014 by the New York Times Book Review, and also of Notes from No Man's Land, a collection of essays that won the National Book Critics Circle Award for criticism in 2010. Eula spoke with Commonweal's assistant editor, Griffin Olenek, about the spiritual challenges of racism, the meaning of whiteness, and the craft of nonfiction writing. Can you talk a bit about what you mean by whiteness, how you came to want to write a book about it, a series of essays about it, and why you think it's important today that we talk about it? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I do, I continue to struggle with what exactly whiteness means. But I think for me, when I talk about whiteness, I'm talking about the historical situation that we, that I occupy. You know, people talk about whiteness being an identity category, and I don't, I don't think of it so much as the thing I identify with or identify as, so much as the historical situation that I was born into and that I must now reckon with in my adult life. It's a historical situation in which I am in, in the role of, of an oppressor and, um, right. Right. and where I, I reap the benefits of an impressive system. Whether I deny or acknowledge my own whiteness, I will reap those benefits. And that's what makes it, I think, particularly seductive for people to ignore or deny their own whiteness is that you can entirely ignore or deny it and still reap all the benefits. Mm -hmm. 
So whether exactly, so for you, whiteness is not so much, I look at myself in the mirror and I see that my skin color is white. It's a set of relations. Yes. And I can deny those relations if I want, but I'm still going to benefit from them. That's what whiteness is. It's a set of circumstances, or as you're saying, a, a situation that you find yourself in. Yes. And, you know, if I look back on many of the major events of my adult life or the the major advantages that I've had in, in my adult life. And, you know, starting actually in my late teens, my, my entrance into college, the fact that I had my college education paid for a series of jobs that I got in my twenties, um, my entrance into graduate school, um, my hiring at a, at an elite university. So I'm, I'm giving you a short history of my adult life, Pretty much every one of those pivotal points, I've good reason to believe that my whiteness gave me some advantage. I really do believe that this system of racial oppression is damaging to white people as well as to others. And and actually, you know, on a on a spiritual level, I think it, it's profoundly damaging. It's damaging to one's humanity, one's ability to be a full person. That's what feels at stake to me. In a sense, talking about this, working with it, muddling through, trying to make some sort of action, which is really, you know, that's close as I ever get is, you know, a kind of muddle towards action. But that feels like uh, an effort to save my own soul, essentially. You've got this beautiful essay, No Man's Land, it's called, and you're describing your neighborhood in Chicago called Rogers Park and your interactions with your neighbors and the ways that some of the white neighbors uh, refer to themselves as pioneers, a bit about gentrification, which is certainly something that I witness and experience every day in New York City. But I'm wondering if you could speak a bit more about that, a bit more about the the narratives that words contain and reveal, but also hide. Any, any specific situations jump to mind for you? Sure. That essay is a great example in that that entire essay was born of that single word, pioneer. Mm. And it's a word that, of course, I've I'd heard before in my life. It was a word I was familiar with, but it took on a new charge in this neighborhood and every time I heard a white person in my neighborhood refer to themselves as a pioneer, I knew there was something deeply wrong with that, that designation and that way of imagining oneself in the neighborhood space. But again, this was the essay was a project towards a precise understanding of what exactly was wrong there. On a kind of intuitive level, I knew, oh, that's wrong. But then the essay helped me think through the dimensions of how exactly and why it's wrong. And, you know, I started that essay, it began with the word, but one of the first things I did was ask myself, what does this word mean to me? What connotations does it have for me? And I had loved very much Laura Ingalls Wilder as a child and Little Miss in the Prairie books. And that was the very first thing that was called to mind for me. And it was distressing and disturbing to me to have Laura Ingalls Wilder mixed up in the racial politics of my neighborhood. Her books had been 
so important to me as a young reader. But I decided that I would return to the books and I would do what I anticipated being the kind of awful work of looking at them again as an adult. And I fully expected to to have the books change for me, to return to them as an adult and knowing what I knew as an adult to be no longer able to admire Laura Ingalls Wilder and no longer able to treasure these books. And some of that happened. Those books aren't perfect, but I was actually quite surprised when I returned to Little House on the Prairie by how much evidence there was that Laura Ingalls Wilder was thinking about race and thinking about the racial politics of what was happening on the prairie in that moment and thinking about the damage that was being done by the pioneers of that moment. So there is, there's more work that could have been done there, but the book is not entirely lacking in introspection or, or kind of subtle analysis around the tragedy of the American West And part of that is because Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote that, I think, nearly 60 years after the events in her life that it's about. And she went back and did quite a bit of research in order to write that book. And she had to learn quite a bit about the Native Americans in that area. And all of that learning is fairly subtly rendered in the book. It certainly centers and foregrounds the white characters, but there's an ongoing there's an ongoing critique, and this critique is uh, delivered in a way that makes some people so uncomfortable with the book that they don't want it taught in schools and they don't want it available in libraries. And that's because there's a refrain throughout the book, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. But if you track the way that refrain appears, the entire plot of the book is designed to be a critique of that statement. So that's probably too sophisticated for your average seven-year-old to really absorb. (laughs) But so that was one of the great surprises of that essay was for me to discover that even the, the people who I thought of as the original pioneers were fairly uncomfortable with what had been done in the name of the pioneer. Yeah, and they were certainly aware of the violence that they were causing. Yes, absolutely. And then what's so beautiful in the essay is how you juxtapose that literary analysis of Laura Ingalls Wilder with your own experience of living or moving into a neighborhood in Chicago. Can you say a bit about that neighborhood and the the kinds of attitudes that you discovered there and, and the ways that it changed you living there? Yeah, so this this neighborhood is Rogers Park. It's the furthest northeast neighborhood in Chicago. And and Chicago is known as a segregated city and and even a hyper segregated city, meaning that most neighborhoods have a vast majority like around 80 or 90% of one racial group. Mm. But that's what was unusual about Rogers Park is that it it's, it has no racial majority. It's a an unusually integrate racially integrated neighborhood for Chicago. Mm. And the area that I lived in was mostly African American. Um, there are other areas of Rogers Park that are dominated by um, Indian and Pakistani 
immigrants. There are other neighborhoods that are largely Latino Mexican immigrants. Um, so it's there's there's neighborhoods within the neighborhood, but the area where I lived was was mostly African American, with the exception of a very thin sliver of the neighborhood right along the lake shore. And this is where it was, the neighborhood was much more mixed and there was a lot more white folks living right on this, the road that I lived on, which was right up against the the shore of Lake Michigan. And so the experience of living there was in some ways like the experience that I'd had in other neighborhoods where I lived in other cities where I was having daily interactions with people who of different races than myself. But I don't think that I had yet lived in a neighborhood where the tensions associated with gentrification were so so apparent to me and so so frequently flared up in ways that I could see and understand. I'm sure I lived in other you know, soon to be gentrifying or almost gentrifying neighborhoods before, but this was a neighborhood in a in the very active process of gentrification, and and the white people that I interacted with had disturbing attitudes, as we've discussed. They compared themselves to pioneers, but they were also you know clearly afraid of their own neighbors. So almost all the white folks in my neighborhood had really large dogs and. Um, that I came to understand that not as a love of animals, but as a fear of one's neighbors. And and there was disturbing sense of we're staking our claim, uh, essentially. So I lived right on a park uh, with a beach. And after the 4th of July, the 4th of July was a holiday where people from all over the neighborhood would show up. And it was really a a totally beautiful scene at this in this park. There would be Pakistani families having picnics and Mexican families setting off fireworks and African-American families barbecuing and white folks taking their kayaks out on the lake. But under that, there was a real vibration of competition over turf. And I that was one of the times during the year when... I would very frequently hear nasty remarks about either the the Mexicans or the African Americans and I would also hear my white neighbors considered the park theirs and so there were a lot of comments about oh these people come in and they throw trash everywhere and they ruin our park and so there was not at all you know it might have looked utopian on its surface but the, there was not a utopian attitude among my white neighbors and so that's part of what i was thinking through in that essay is the the kind of the turf war that was going on there and that was in many ways reminiscent of the, you know, the taking of the American West. I'm wondering if we could speak a bit more about your role as a teacher of writing. So you teach in a creative writing program, and you've been a teacher in a sense for much of your adult life. Could you talk a bit about your experience of teaching and how that's played into your understanding of writing? Mm. What are the connections that you see between the two? One of the really interesting things to me is that I now routinely work with students who are thinking and writing about whiteness. Hmm. That was not true. I've been 
teaching at Northwestern for 13 years now. And that was not true in my first five years here. I think I worked with one student in those first five years who was a white woman thinking about race and whiteness, though she didn't use the term whiteness. That's what she was thinking about. But now, just yesterday, I was having a conversation with a student who is writing about whiteness and Jewish assimilation into whiteness and struggling with some big questions about her own identity as a Jewish American and asking herself how much she has and hasn't assimilated into what is essentially white culture, though I loathe to use that term because I don't think there actually is such a thing as white culture. It's just a white power structure, I guess is probably a better term. I now fairly frequently get to talk about race and whiteness with undergraduate students. I've also been teaching, I've been teaching Jamaica Kincaid's essay, A Small Place, Mm. for my entire career at Northwestern. And I've noticed a real shift in the student's readiness to engage with the critique that Kincaid is making in that essay. And it's a very direct critique of privileged white tourism. And when I first started teaching this essay, it made my students very defensive. And whenever I taught it, I had to prepare myself for a difficult conversation that would initially be full of defensiveness from white students. And in the last couple of years, that hasn't been my experience teaching that essay. It's, I think that the students who are reaching me are already primed to meet that critique and to talk it through and to begin to reckon with it. I thought we could end on a note that you include in, in some of the end notes to your essays. You have this essay called All Apologies, where you reflect on the nature of what an apology is. What does it mean to say you're sorry? Uh, How does that shift relationships? And in this era of Me Too, call-out culture, these sorts of things that we're we're living with on a daily basis, the demands for apologies, I'm wondering if you could speak a a bit about this conclusion that you reach, which is, first of all, we need to forgive ourselves. I'm wondering if you could speak about how you came to think about apologies. Who do you think we owe apologies to now? And how might that set us free? Yeah. 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 That essay came out of a very private memory of my younger sister telling me when we were quite young, she was probably only three or four, which would make me six or seven at the time. And I hit her and then apologized immediately. And I was truly immediately sorry for what I'd done. And she said, um, this is my sister who would go on to become a philosopher. But at Three or four, she her the form her philosophizing took was she said, sorry doesn't cut it. And my response was, what do you mean? Sorry is how you erase a wrongdoing. And she said, no, no, you can't. You don't, you don't get to take back what you did with a word. It's you have to live with your action. And this stayed on my mind for the, you know, the rest of my life, really. I was in my late 20s by the time I wrote about it. And it had the, the, the philosophical question that she had posed had remained troubling to me, this, this possibility that there are things that cannot be apologized for and that actions are 
irrevocable and that there are wrongs so grievous that they can't be, they can't ever be addressed. And so that of course brought me to some of these questions about racial wrongs and how, how we should and how we can reckon with and potentially apologize for or atone for these racial wrongs in the contemporary moment. And I actually don't really feel very settled on that question at all. I think that essay moves back and forth between different ways of thinking about apology. And I don't feel that I came out of it with a very good sense of conclusion, but I think what I did discover or decide in the process of writing it is that even though the act of apology is symbolic, it carries significance and it carries meaning for both the person who apologizes and the person who receives the apology. Even if the apology is not accepted, there's some significance there. And so I think I I walked away from that essay feeling that it is, it's better to to make an attempt at apology, even if you know it can't and won't be accepted, that the the wrong was too grievous to make it even appropriate for someone else to accept the apology. You know, for instance, no one can accept an apology for slavery. That's, it's an impossible apology. And there's no, there's no one who could possibly be authorized to accept it. But that doesn't mean that the apology shouldn't be made or spoken or that some move towards atonement should be made. Um, And in terms of forgiving oneself, I'm kind of circling back around to your original question. I think it's very hard to look at your own wrongdoing without a readiness to forgive yourself. Hmm. I think if you're not ready to forgive yourself, you can't look. and so it's it's part of the process. Well, Yula, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. This was such a generous interview, and I so enjoyed talking with you. Eula Biss's Notes from No Man's Land has just been re-released in a revised 10th anniversary edition. Have a favorite article you've read from a recent issue? Let us know. And join the conversation online on Facebook at facebook.com slash commonwealthmagazine, on Twitter at commonwealthmag, and on Instagram. Hosfman Espino, Associate Professor of Theology and Religious Studies at Boston College and the Director of Graduate Programs in Hispanic Ministry, has written extensively on Latin American Catholicism and demographics in the U.S. Church. Recently, I talked with him about how the experience of the Catholic immigrant to the United States has helped shape the idea of cultural Catholicism and what he calls the Catholic incubator, and also how new generations of Latin Americans are infusing those notions with new energy, even as technology, social media, and economic and social structures impose their own challenges. Hasman, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Dominic, and it's a pleasure to engage with you in conversation. Thanks. I want to jump right into things because uh, I've seen you, uh, pieces you've written, and, uh, and I know you've spoken about it too, about your growing up in what you call a Catholic incubator. 
And I thought it would be helpful for our audience to hear a little bit about that experience, about what you mean, and how you see that image at work here in the United States today. Sure. Well, Dominic, I was uh, born in uh, Colombia, South America. And when I was a child, there was uh, about 90, 93% of the entire population in Colombia self-identified as a Roman Catholic. So in a sense, it was inescapable to self-identify as such. And that experience, Catholic experience, somehow mirrored the experience of Catholicism in Latin America, considered pretty much you know, one of the most Catholic geographical uh, sectors in the entire world. About 40% of all uh, Catholics uh, in the world live in Latin America. So one breathes Catholicism, one understands Catholicism there. Now, the United States of America has never been a Catholic nation, but we have to say that because of the migration of Catholic groups through, you know, for the last two centuries or so, we have seen what we can call Catholic pockets or the, or what I call in my articles uh, Catholic incubators. And until recently, the U.S. culture was very welcoming, you know, accepting and even nurturing of religious experiences like Catholicism from Germany or Italy or Irish Catholicism and other forms of Catholicism. But a lot of that has changed, you know, in light of sociocultural forces like secularization and, and even the instrumentalization of religion as a political tool when we find so much ideology, ideology far right, far left. So that makes it almost impossible to, for these Catholic incubators to survive. Mm. You raise an interesting point there because you and others have mentioned it's not necessarily a new phenomenon in America. The previous generations of the Euro-American white Catholics experienced something similar decades ago. And, and I remember uh, reading Robert Orsi many years ago uh, and his whole book about the Italian-American Catholic experience, uh, The Madonna of 115th Street. And it makes me wonder what you think. Are Catholic incubators in America part and parcel with the immigrant experience? Well, for the most part, yes. Uh, we can see, I mean, when we compare the... Uh, the experience of, say, Latinos today or Vietnamese Catholics or uh, the experience of uh, Catholics from Africa to that of the immigrants from Ireland and Italy and Poland and uh, Germany from other different time in history, we can say that we have that similar experience. But we also need to understand that there's also, there is a big difference you know, between being a Catholic immigrant in the 19th century and a Catholic immigrant in the 21st century. And the main reason is that the cultural background within which these Catholics live and practice their faith has changed dramatically. For, uh, just for, you know, to give you a few pointers, for instance, today, life you know, moves much faster than before, you know. Prior to a couple of centuries ago or a century ago, you know, a Catholic community would establish themselves in a town and their children, grandchildren and great grandchildren will live in the same town and the same communities, the same church. That's not the case uh, anymore in, in our day. People today are rarely settled in one place, and that includes immigrants who are always following their job. So in many ways, you know, being a, a Catholic uh, today is part of being part of a society which is on the move. The influence of technology has dramatically redefined relationships and how we understand ourselves in, in as a community. And I think that the other piece is that 
today, you know, society's attitudes toward religion is significantly different compared to that in the 19th century. Yes, there was anti-Catholicism back then, and there was no resistance against Catholics, but still Catholics could thrive in their communities without a problem. But now we have the challenge of secularization, for instance, that really makes uh, or or provides antagonistic contexts for the thriving of Catholicism. Yeah, that's a, an interesting note, and it makes me think of an article I was uh, reading recently. It was a USA Today piece uh, speaking about the Latin American Catholic experience uh, today in particular. The, the reporter makes the point that for many children born in Latin America or to Latino parents but raised here in the U.S., merging two competing cultures is a challenge. At school, they might speak English and debate the latest plots from The Walking Dead. At home, they speak Spanish with older members as Telemundo plays in the background. They prefer to hear the homily in English, but find comfort in Spanish prayer and worship songs. And I, that's a, I think that's a bit of a, a, maybe a simplification of a complicated notion. But nevertheless, it makes me wonder what you think, how this happens in succeeding generations. I mean, we've seen the gradual disconnect from a culturally integrated Catholicism to a mere cultural Catholicism, if not general affiliation. Yeah. Is this just sort of foreordained or inevitable, even even in what is really the most probably thriving Catholic community in the in the nation? Yeah. The influence of Telemundo and Galavision, Univision and all these Spanish networks and today, you know, we have access to satellites and cable that bring those Latin American worlds in our, into our own homes. So Going back to the the initial uh, point that I made earlier, you know, that being an immigrant today is very different from being an immigrant in the 19th century. That's key because uh, the the truth is that the U.S.-born children of these immigrants are exposed to really forceful and sophisticated dynamics that accelerate assimilation or integration uh, in this culture, which is constantly changing, you know? I mean, the vast majority of uh, children or young people who are children of immigrants go to schools, public schools, actually, that's to be more exact. And that wasn't the case in the past, since many young kids back then in the 19th century, early 20th century, did not go to public schools because Many places didn't, didn't have public schools, and many of Catholic children actually went to uh, to Catholic schools. But that's not the case uh, today. We also have the influence of technology and social media, which is constantly shaping the lives uh, of people, you know, and the internet, access to computers, and so forth. So. Technically, we have this generation of U.S.-born kids, you know, who are being constantly exposed to these social phenomena, and then they are being raised in the United States of America. Most Hispanic kids you know, under 18 are being raised or growing up in the home with an adult who is foreign-born, an immigrant. And for these people, the passing of the faith and the values is usually through personal contact at home. So you get the influence of the media, schools, friends, society in general on the one hand, and barely you get the, the personal contact. But what adds to the situation or, or to the travails of, uh, of, of Latinos and, and, and immigrants, uh, among others, is that... Uh, 
immigrants have to work significantly. You know, they have to work two, three jobs in order to survive. They have to wrestle with cultural adjustments and so forth. Today, both women and men have to go to work. So nobody stays home to help the, the, new, the new generation. So these traditions, you know, including values, religions, and so forth, are not passed on in the same way as, as it used to be in the past. So I mean, the last bastion of Catholicism for many immigrants is the home. And even family life is being affected by the many dynamics that I just described. Yeah, you know, from the uh, from the same USA Today story, there's an interesting bit of data in it. I guess there was a question, a survey posed as part of the fifth Aquentro uh, that found that young Hispanic Catholics, uh, which they term, uh, you know, ages 18 through 39, are sort of experiencing an identity issue. They, they ask, where do I fit? And a young woman is quoted in the piece, and she, she says... You know, the bottom line is many Latinos in the church feel more comfortable in the dominant culture in the U.S. And I'm wondering, you know, you're at a university and mm. do you see this personally? Do you engage with this issue? Do you encounter this? No, without a doubt. As a matter of fact, when one looks at the surveys of uh, young Latinos, Latinas, the number one issue you know, with, with which they are wrestling is... Uh, cultural self-identification. I mean, at home, they may be called Latinos or uh, outside, they may be, I mean, they are American, and but they are Americans who are Latinos. And for some reason, our society still struggles to pull this to, uh, together. But I, there's something that needs to be said, and, and that is that Latinos in general are a very young population. The median age for Hispanics is 29. So this is, I mean, this is more than half of Hispanics in this country are younger than 25, just to give you a sense of how young the population is. Also, the majority of Hispanics in this country are uh, U.S.-born. Um, give or take about 64% of Hispanics, two-thirds, were born in this country. I mean, one can easily say that being American is as natural as being Hispanic and vice versa. I mean, there is th this dynamic. And so it is not a surprise, frankly, you know, for Latinos who are being raised in this country, 94% of Hispanics under 18 were born in the United States. So it's not unusual to imagine or it's not a surprise to imagine that Latinos are uh, integrating, some people like the word assimilating into the larger culture, and then wrestling with, like anybody else with the question of who am I and whether religiously or even culturally. But by and large, most U.S.-born Latinos, I would say, are tilting towards the side of becoming more integrated into the larger U.S. culture. But again, I, I want to go back to a point that I made earlier, Dominic, and that is, what's the U.S. culture? It's a culture that is constantly changing and it's constantly shifting and it's constantly moving into something else. And this is not even talking about geographically speaking. I live in New England. Being Catholic and being American in New England is different from being Catholic and being New England in Mississippi or in California. So... That's kind of the context in which we are now trying to build a church that is highly diverse and also highly pluralistic. Thanks. That's a. It's interesting to think about. I want to. I want to shift gears a little bit because in the framing of my previous question, I, I mentioned uh, the Encuentro, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the origin and aims of the Encuentro meetings more specifically, from when it was first held in 1972. Yes, um, as uh, you can you know, anyone can figure out, you know, the word encuentro means encounter. And uh, these meetings began in the 1970s 
The church in the world had experienced the Second Vatican Council in 1965, and then in 1968, the bishops of Latin America decided to implement, or not only implement, but to kind of expand on the wisdom of the council, and they organized encuentros or encounters throughout Latin America in which bishops, theologians, lay leaders would come together to discuss crucial issues about the life of the church. One of the biggest encuentros that they had in Latin America was Medellin. And we just last year celebrated the 50th anniversary of Medellin. Some of the leaders, particularly a priest who used to work uh, for Salam, moved to the United States. His name is Edgar Beltran. And Edgar Beltran began to travel around the United States. He was invited by the bishops of this country to look at Hispanic ministry and what was, you know, what was happening, how it could be improved, and how we could do much better as a church, integrating Latinos and welcoming and serving Latinos. So Edgar, tra- no, Father Edgar back then, you no, know, traveled around the country, and he realized that Latinos were talking about the same issues, but they were not getting together. So he said, why don't we have an encuentro? Why don't we have an encounter that pulls our voices together? They did that in 1972. The meeting was excellent. And then they decided to do it again. But this time, including more women, more sisters, including more lay people. The first meeting was kind of uh, mostly a clergy meeting. Then in 1977, they gathered together. But this time, the, the focus was evangelization. And evangelization through the lens of social justice, commitment, organizing. Then there was a third encuentro in 1980. 85, in which they included a major process of national consultation. More than half a million people nationwide were consulted. Then there was a fourth encuentro in 2000, which actually didn't follow the same pattern of advocacy or the same pattern of uh, inquiry about evangelization of Latinos. But the focus in the 2000 encuentro was cultural diversity. But Latinos felt that we needed a space to have a more uh, concentrated or more focused conversation. And that was in in 2018 that we had the fifth National Encuentro of Latino Ministry. All in all, these are meetings that pull together the leadership of the Catholic Church on the one hand to identify ways to better serve Latinos in the Catholic Church in this country, but on the other, to empower Latinos to assume more responsibility in the processes of evangelization. Hasman, I want to get back to some of the cultural issues that we were talking about a moment ago, but kind of from a different angle, because you've advanced some interesting ideas about reincorporating cultural practices and traditions into Catholicism. And I'm just going to read back to you something you've written elsewhere. Latin American immigrants come from contexts where Catholicism is caught, lived, and breathed more than argued, explained, and defended. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could talk about this since, as you stated earlier, this is also the context you come from. Well, what happens is that Catholicism in the United States of, of America can be perfectly conceived or described as the as, as a matrix that has embraced, incorporated different uh, ways of being Catholic. Philosopher Charles Taylor, for instance, says that we should really get used to the idea that there are multiple Catholicisms coexisting within the same church. You know, we all believe in Jesus Christ. We all believe in the Trinity. We all have the same sacraments and read the same scriptures and so forth. But there are many ways of, uh, of living this, uh, this Catholicism. What happens is that a lot of the many expressions of Latino Catholicism, but it's not only exclusively Latino, it's also Asian and African Catholicism, has been nurtured by 
popular Catholicism, by popular expressions of devotion. You know, it's a Catholicism that is lived through relationships. It's a Catholicism that is lived through rituals and symbols. And then in the United States of America, what we have seen is a Catholicism that has been influenced significantly by Protestantism on the one hand, and also it's been influenced by the education that many Catholics, especially white American Catholics, have access. So in a sense, you know, we see a Catholicism in this country that has shifted away from devotional life, has shifted from rituals, except the sacraments, and has shifted away from the more emotional, relational dynamics, becoming a Catholicism that is highly rational, that is very academic, that is uh, Catholicism that uh, uh, that, that tends to be significantly contentious, you know, with culture, sometimes against uh, against culture. So what I've been proposing in, in many ways, you know, and I'm not the only one, many many theologians are actually doing this, or theologians like Virgilio Lison, Orlando Spin, Ada Maria Isasidias, Peter Fan in the, on the side of Vietnamese Catholic theolo- theology. And what we have seen is simply an invitation to imagine bringing together this Catholicism that faith communities that are Asian, Hispanic, that build upon popular Catholicism to enrich the larger experience of Catholic life in the United States, not as opposites, you know, as two different opposites, one against the other, but as two sides of the same coin. So we don't want to look at these two experiences of Catholicism, the one that is mostly sustained by popular devotion and relationships and communal life, and that that is highly intellectual or that is more critical, that is more, uh, that builds on on debate and rational, and, and rational argument. We don't want to see those two as contraposing each other, but we want to see them as two sides of the same coin. I want to wind up, Hoffman, with kind of a more general question, and I'm going to go back to the image of the Catholic incubator. Do you detect that the Catholic incubator leads to a different kind of engagement with understanding and dealing with some of the difficult challenges the church is facing right now on a larger institutional scale, from the sex abuse crisis to the welcome and accompaniment of LGBT people to immigration? If that's the case, could you describe the difference, and and what do you think accounts for it? Every expression of Catholic life, and it also applies to how we live our culture, has its pros uh, and cons. I mean, the idea of a Catholic incubator uh, expands the horizon insofar as it allows people to be explicitly Catholic with others. I mean, when families and communities speak similar language and celebrate together and they have common rituals and common symbols that bring them together. And then out of that experience of community kind of emerges a series of values that lead people to make commitments in society, in their families, in in their community, in their government, and so forth. But then the problem is that Catholic incubators can be isolated or can, can become silos because they may fail to address issues that the rest of the society and the rest of the Catholic community actually is wrestling with. In those big issues, for instance, that we are constantly wrestling with in the United States, like abortion, for instance, or questions, life issues, immigration, 
or death penalty, L, you know, uh, this, uh, how do we embrace uh, LGBTQ, uh, you know, sisters and brothers who are who share the same faith and sexual abuse uh, scandals and so forth. What happens is that Catholic incubators could be used, in a sense, as uh, excuses to avoid engaging those big realities, you know, and, and, I, and I think that they need to be critiqued in, a, in that sense. But on the other hand, I see a lot of Catholics who actually go outside and engage in public conversations about these same, exactly same issues in the name of Roman Catholicism, in the name of, of the faith. But unfortunately, many of them are not are not involved in a, in a particular community that sustains them, that gives them hope or a community that helps them to kind of wrestle with Catholic identity as such if, so they can actually go out and engage these uh, other issues. So... I mean, in general, for instance, I mean, a lot of Catholics be, live in these Catholic incubators. I mean, Hispanics live in these Catholic incubators, these uh, neighborhoods that are highly Catholic and practices like uh, movements, ecclesial movements, like the Catholic Charismatic Renewal are well known for uh, expanding the spiritual life of Hispanic Catholics, but sometimes, you know, fail to engage in questions of Catholic uh, social justice. And that's where correctives need to happen. But at the same time, that's where we all need to start in conversation with one another and not isolate X group or other group. And going back to the previous conversation, we need to be attentive not to think that being in the Catholic incubator or the Catholic silo is better than being out there and engaging in critical dialogue with a larger culture. Hasman, thank you for your thoughts today. This episode will be actually uh, airing after March 15th, but in the time between us speaking today and the time this airs, you will also be speaking at Fordham University. And I'm wondering if, if you wouldn't mind saying a few words about what your talk will be about. The lecture that I will be delivering uh, uh, at Fordham University is a lecture that is going to make a claim that engaging, embracing the Hispanic presence in the United States for the Catholic Church is not a choice, but a, an ethical responsibility. And that means that we need to stop looking at Latinos as a community that is passing or a community that simply is not relevant or is visiting many of our neighborhoods or churches, but it is integral to the identity of Roman Catholicism in, in the United States. So what are the ethical implications? And from those ethical implications, then what are the ministerial and evangel evangelization commitments that come from with it? Thanks, uh, Hoffman, for your time today. I really appreciate your talking with us at the podcast. Thank you, Dominic. Looking to connect with like-minded people to discuss the pressing issues at the intersection of faith and contemporary politics and culture? Check out our Commonweal local communities. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the communities link. Catherine Davis's eighth novel is The Silk Road, published in March by Grey Wolf. Here she talks to Commonweal literary editor Anthony Domestico about the genesis of the book, as well as about her love of mystery and metaphor, and how the idea of pilgrimage has figured into her writing. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Catherine. 
I struggled for a long time trying to come up with a pithy description of this novel for listeners who haven't yet read uh, The Silk Road. It's such a singular novel, structurally, stylistically, even metaphysically, that it seems to almost have refused summary. <laughs> but I, I thought I might put the burden on you. And when um, inevitably someone asks you, what is this novel, The Silk Road, about? How do you begin to answer that question? One way I would answer the question is to describe how I came to write it. So my husband has terminal cancer. And at the time I started writing the book, the cancer wasn't, in fact, at that point terminal. But um, we were dealing with a very serious situation that to a person like me, who's been preoccupied since I think the day I was born with the question of what is it that makes us be living beings as opposed to just, you know, a chair or a table. The situation with Eric got me stirred up in a new way about a subject that has been my subject all along. And I want, I knew I wanted to write I wanted to write about that, but I didn't want to write, you know, a memoir of illness. And I also had recently been, um, I had gone on the uh, Pilgrim Walk, that a, a tiny piece of it appears in the novel, a, a bit of my experience there. And that was a profound experience for me. And walking, the act of walking and the feeling of traveling through space and time that you encounter when walking, I knew I wanted to write about that as well. And that was sort of how it all began. And, and also, I had for years and years been trying to convince anybody who would listen that a really great way to write um, a murder mystery would be to start with some people in a yoga class and and have one of them not get up after they've been in corpse pose. And nobody took me up on that. And I thought, no, I can do that. I can use that very trope and I can begin my book with it, but I don't have to write a standard murder mystery. And then mainly I wanted to be writing about, um, you know, what it means to be a living creature living a life in this universe we inhabit in which we contend with the fact that we think we know what time is all about. We think we know what space and place is all about, but we are so really woefully ignorant of the big picture. So those were all things I wanted to write about. Yeah. And one of the things I love about the novel is how you, I mean, you mentioned your interest in murder mysteries and how it's set up as if it is going to be even maybe a closed door murder mystery in which we're going to kind of read to find out who, who did it and why. And I know you've spoken before about what you find interesting kind of narratively about the form of the mystery. And I wonder if you, if you could talk about that a little bit. What is it that draws you? 
do you read mysteries yourself or do you just find that as an interesting structure to put onto your decidedly non-mystery novel-like novels? I read mystery novels pretty obsessively and I love them. And at one time I even thought, well, why on earth don't you, you know, make, invent a detective and write a series of mystery novels? I always tell students, you know, you should write what you love to read. But it turns out I did try. So I tried. And, and here's what I found out. I found out that if you want to write a good mystery novel, you have to be much more interested in planning than I am. I never, I mean, it's not as if I have no idea what I'm going to do when I set out to write a book, but I would never do the kind of outlining or thinking that um, I believe is productive of a a well-plotted mystery novel. And when I tried to do it, the, the prospect of then writing the thing I had plotted out was so boring to me, I didn't want to do it. When I'm reading a mystery, I do not know where we're headed. And so I have the pleasure of, you know, the thrill of discovery is an aspect of reading a really wonderful book, say, by P.D. James. Um, I've just been rereading lately. But to do it myself, it was not possible. And it was it was sort of sad Though I also realized that my least favorite part of any mystery is when you get to the end where they're all sitting around and the detective tells you what has actually happened. I don't find that so interesting. I think my experience growing up in a house where people were not very overt about what was going on ever turned me into the kind of person who likes looking for signs and clues. And I feel like that is the way I understand the world around me. So that is the one of the aspects of a, a mystery that is exciting and interesting to me. You mentioned the personal experience of walking uh, the pilgrimage route And you said that there was something incredibly profound and moving to you about your experience of place and time while going through the physical act of walking on the pilgrimage route. Could you speak more to that? And and just, I'm also interested what imaginatively or narratively drew you to the pilgrimage as an overarching structure for this novel. Well, what drew me to the pilgrim walk is in a way what drew me to that structure for the novel. I had I had two friends who had done a portion of the Pilgrim Trail, and this is a part of it in France. They had done it before and talked about it, and I thought that is something I would like to do. And I like the fact that the road itself that you're traveling on is very, very old. I mean, obviously... There are parts of it that have been very recently paved, but the route itself has been there for a really long time. And so people for many, many years have been walking on this trail and they've been walking toward a a sort of holy, their, their goal has been a place that at least to some of the people walking on the trail 
is associated with intense holiness, um, spiritual, kind of spiritual understanding or an opening up of some aspect of life that is not just in the here and now. That's what you're headed for. In the meantime, you are just walking. And the act of walking is just so, you know, one foot after another. So it's it's about as mundane and physical an act as, you know, your body can participate in. And that is attractive to me as well, that sort of combination of the destination being ineffable. And here you are just plodding along like a mule. So the tension between those two was something I wanted in the book. And it's what I, it is what I want to write about when I write. So, I mean, in that way, you could say I've been writing the same book over and over again on the one hand. On the other hand, the one thing I really have not wanted to do is write the same book over and over again. And I've really always hoped that when, you know, the next incarnation of what I want to write shows itself to me, that it's not going to be like the one I just did. Have you had a chance to think back on that question about what has and hasn't changed over the course of your career, given that Labrador was just reissued by Grey Wolf. It's a beautiful, beautiful edition. Yeah, isn't it great? And, and yeah. I love it that it's my sister's painting on the cover. So. Mm, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so I opened the book sort of at random, doing a thing I've always done with a book when I first finished it, which is I, I think of it as spot checking, where I just oh. open the book and and hope that what I open to is going to be pleasing to me as opposed to something where I think, eh, I don't really feel like reading this, which is, you know, can happen. So I opened Labrador at random and started to read. And I was sort of, it was a, I had a combination of responses. One was that I found the, the excessive use of metaphor, I found it very annoying even though I thought many of the metaphors were, you know, quite skillful. You're still a deeply metaphorical and figurative writer and thinker, it strikes me, but there's a way in which the metaphors or figures in, say, the Silk Road or in Duplex oftentimes kind of jump out at the end of a seemingly flat sentence, whereas in Labrador, it's really kind of metaphorical intensity from start to finish. There isn't nearly as much kind of tonal flatness leading to those bursts of lyricism. That seems exactly right, at least in terms of my own experience rereading and then composing The Silk Road. I sort of, I feel like the older I have gotten, the more interested I am in getting down to what feels like essentials when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. not that I don't pay attention to the language. It's very, it's, you know, it's what you have when you're writing, but I feel as if the language is simpler. And one of the reasons that I think, as we were talking about before, your novels are a little bit difficult to summarize is because it strikes me that they're organized 
as much musically as anything else with tropes and images and concepts that are introduced and then recur in a different tone and then kind of constellate together by the end of the novel. And so I was wondering if you wouldn't mind if I could just mention a couple of the concepts or tropes or images that recur throughout the Silk Road. And you don't have to, you don't have to speak necessarily to how they play out in the novel, but just what you found imaginatively resonant about them. Okay. The Boet, and now I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, I'm sure, the Boetes Void. (laughs) If you could tell our listeners what you think that's right. I think it is pronounced like that, but I had to look it up. I wasn't sure how it was pronounced either. Yeah. So if you could just say what that is and what you find interesting or surprising or worth kind of imaginatively exploring about that phenomenon. Well, to begin with, I am not a scientist and my understanding of many of the things that appeal to me that I write about is it's not a very good, deep, informed understanding. It's more the word itself, boatis, the way it looks, appeal to me. The fact that it's a place in the universe that cosmologists have been fascinated by because it seems as if things go into this space and when they either they don't come out at all or when they do, they are transformed in some way that is unexpected. That's the layperson's description of something that is much more fascinating if you actually read about it than what I'm saying. But it appealed to my imagination because it was one of the great mysteries of the universe, the universe we dwell in, and and as much as scientists were, were able to explore or investigate it, they weren't actually able to figure out, you know, how big it is or what it's doing. And and that is that is so exciting to me. Yeah, it's a great description of the Silk Road, right? As a novel, there's this mystery that we're moving towards, that we're trying to understand, that ultimately refuses kind of explicability. Yeah, and and that is, ultimately, that's the way the world, the universe presents itself to me. It would be crazy for me to write something that, you know, presumed to explain what's going on in any kind of logical way. So one thing that that I should say are that the, the the characters in the Silk Road are named kind of Chaucer style with just their professional titles. So there's the archivist, there's the astronomer, there's the botanist, etc. And one of the major characters, one of the major pilgrim characters in the novel is called the topologist. And so similar to my question about the Boote's void, what drew you to topology? Because it's not just that the the topologist is a figure, but topology and topological thought experiments and uh, recur throughout the Silk Road. I remember the first time I encountered the word, it was was in a sort of space-time for beginners or for dummies kind of book. And there was a description of a... in, In topology, 
space is considered to be elastic. And the example they gave was that if you consider a human body to be just a tube with an an opening, you know, at the mouth and an opening at the anus. So it's like a, a, a tube. And if you imagine that you could stretch that tube up from the top and down from the bottom and just keep stretching, 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 and then you bring the two stretched parts together to make a giant torus, like a big donut, it would be possible to, in conceiving of that, which is a topological kind of experiment, conceive of having a human body contain the whole universe. And so that was a very, when I, when I read that, it really caught my attention. And then I read a little bit more about topology, topological, thinking about space, much of which I couldn't even begin to understand. It's a very, very upper level branch of mathematics and One thing I did read at one point, because I was reading about topologists, and evidently they they go crazy. More topologists go crazy than any other branch of mathematician. Wow, I did not know that. Because I think they're trying to think about things that are really kind of impossible to think about. Uh Uh-huh. And so that was also incredibly appealing to me. Yeah. And I was very lucky that one of my students at Washington University, his roommate turned out to be a topologist. And so I could run some of my very, very brief descriptions of topology that I put into the Silk Road by um, my my, uh, student's roommate to make sure I wasn't saying something that was laughable what you said about topology right which in the topologist in a certain way is trying to think about that which can't be thought about reminds me that would be a good description of the the discipline of theology as well you know think about that which can't be thought about and i'm wondering do you read theology i know that in the thin i think it was in the thin place you have a wonderful little bit about Julian of Norwich, one of my favorite theologians. Yes, me and, too. Yeah, and so, so do, do you read theology for, for pleasure, for kind of imaginative sustenance or, or otherwise? I would say I read theology, have read, I'm attracted to that subject in the same way I have read about well, not exactly in the same way, but somewhat in the same way I've read about higher mathematics. So when I get started thinking about something, I want to know more, but I I do not read in a very thorough and responsible way. I I, I, I mean, I remember thinking when I was writing Versailles and I was writing about an actual historic person and series of events that if any historian had watched the way I was doing my so-called research, they would have been tearing their hair out because it's very hit or miss. But I am attracted to 
I'm attracted to the subject theology in various forms. I'm going to ask you the question that I know some writers don't like to be asked, so feel free to say you don't want to talk about it. But if you're working on anything next, if you've started on anything now that you now that the Silk Road is out in the world, well, there I, I don't mind answering partly because I am working on something that that I can talk about, which is uh, I'm doing a book for Gray Wolf. Um, they have the Art of series. And oh, fantastic. That's one of my favorite series. I can't wait to hear what you're doing. <laughs> it's the art of transition. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And it's really, I, because going back to the subject of music and motif, I do feel like the way I construct a book, in fact, my approach to the whole subject of narrative is completely predicated on um, the use of transition. And it's more a matter of ear for me often, but I, I find the way something, the way something makes transit from one place, one space to another is endlessly fascinating to me. So uh, both Labrador and the Silk Road are now uh, available from Gray Wolf. Catherine Davis, it was a true delight talking with you today. Oh, it was it was so much fun. You mean we have to stop? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Well, thank you. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate publisher Megan Ritchie and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.